Sustrans and the built environment. This is Wheel Life. Legal reflections on vulnerable road users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello, I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beechcroft Solicitors. And in this episode, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by um, Riddhi Kalari from Sustrans. Hi, how are you? Really well. So very pleased you can join us on the uh, pod. Thanks for having me. Well, we've been trying to, as I say, we've been trying to um, encourage someone from Sustrans to speak to us for a little while. And we're so glad you have uh, joined us today. So as you... um, perhaps could start by telling us a little bit about uh, you and Sustrans. Yeah, so I'm Riddy Claria. I'm the partnerships manager here in the West Midlands. So I'm based in our Birmingham office, um, but we've got offices all over the country. So we're a national charity um, and we work to help people to walk, wheel and cycle. So it's just our mission to get more people active on uh, on their feet, on their wheels uh, and get, getting around that way. Sustrans sort of started back in the 70s in Bristol and it was a lot around finding the right spaces for people to cycle. It was around that that safety aspect of finding a nice space that was comfortable for people to cycle in. But we have grown from that. We're so much more than that now. Um, we we work on built environment projects and that's that means that we look at the environment around us and look at how we can design it to be better infrastructure for walking, wheeling and cycling. Um, we also look at behaviour change. So we look at how we can um, encourage different people through different techniques to get into walking, wheeling and cycling. Um, sometimes that's with schools. So we do lots of work with um, primary schools, um, especially so scooter skills and cycling skills and walk to school weeks and bike to school weeks and actually coming up in the next couple of weeks or starting on Monday actually is the big walk and wheel where we encourage uh, children to travel actively to school. No, it's absolutely brilliant. I have to say, until we'd started to um, on this podcast, because as you know, we um, focus on vulnerable road users. I didn't realise Sustrans did more than provide what I'd call the sort of the leisure cycling route, um, which, as you say, is obviously where you started. But Caroline is a Bristol lass. Has obviously got a much uh, a much stronger heritage with the the, the Sustrans uh, mission. Well, when, back in the days of commuting to the office, um, I used I used the Bristol to Bath cycle path because it's from pretty much the end of my road all the way to the office. I can do eight and a half miles on off-road cycle path, which is absolutely brilliant. I don't have to um, any cars or anything. Um, it's all uh, joggers, dog walkers, and cyclists, and e-scooter riders. Now we've got a mix of everything on the path, and it's fantastic facility to have um and i don't think i realize how lucky i am sometimes to have it there literally on my doorstep so i can do a safe safe commute but again as emily said that was my experience of sustrans was the bristol to bath cycle path and that was probably about it so it's really good today to be able to talk to you about how that's developed uh, but also the the longer term solutions that you're looking at and i really like the fact that you're saying that you're taking kids out 
and teaching them from a young age because one of the point one of the points that we come back to quite a lot on the podcast and we covered it a couple of weeks ago with the highway code changes is that everybody is a road user and it's teaching everybody the right skills when they're out on the road so really interested to hear a bit more about that as well absolutely and as you alluded yes the national cycle network that's a big part of sustrans and actually i think that's what a lot of people know us for i think that's where you first sort of yeah get that link between sustrans and cycling um and it is a network of connected paths across the uk and yeah we can talk a little bit more about how we're looking to improve that for different users but of course with the school side of things um it's it is that early start it is that early uh understanding of what travel is i think quite often we automatically get up get out the house leave the house get in the car and go and do what we want to be doing but actually if and it's so sort of automatic like I, even just talking to my husband the other day i i was off uh, to go and collect something and it was about a mile and a half down the road and and he sort of said the car keys are on the side and I and I turned to him and said no I'm, I'm gonna go by bike and he goes oh yeah of course you are sort of even just to him it just didn't occur to him to think about the bike as the first option so by working in those schools we're trying to to send that that part of that message that walking cycling wheeling scooting those are those should be the first option that comes to mind like trying to make that the first thing that kids think about when they think about traveling from a place to another place we had that conversation with adam tranter didn't we when we spoke with him last series who we know is a friend of yours really so that's, he is uh, yes it was great. <laughs> we're, we're looping up the cycling community across our podcast <laughs> across the episodes yeah and it was coming down to those short journeys and it's quite funny when i was a kid i walked to school a mile and a half without thinking about it um whereas now Sainsbury's is a mile and a half down the road I jump in the car I don't jump on the bike and I promised Adam I would so hopefully he's not listening to this episode because I'll be in trouble <laughs> how are you getting on with that like have you have you done a few more bike journeys yeah it's it's more the fact that I kind of because I've got the I, I need a bit more of a day bike um I've right. got kind of the weekend sporty clip-in bike and I right. need one that I can just jump on as you said to do that quick mile and a half cycle yeah I've just treated myself to a day bike uh that can do that a little bit more and I can get out quickly and put my son on the back yeah. um, it's an e-bike actually I've been lucky enough to do that oh, so even better get him on there and carry him with yeah my sort of cycling really is is very much as a kind of commuting person so we always had a tandem my, my son's now um 15 so he's a bit old for that but always when he was very little first of all on the chair on the back of the bike and then when he was a bit older a, a tandem with shaft cranks to start with so he could still fix each pedals but he always used to feel very cheated on the cycle to school week because if you changed how you cycled you got a if you changed how you traveled to school if you got out of the car and came on a different route you got a badge and he's like but I do it all the time and, uh, you know, why don't I get a badge every week? But um, it's, I think one of the things that's interesting is that sort of original vision of Sustrans is very much as leisure cycling. You're going off at the weekend on a kind of disused railway with a lovely pathway and kind of countryside. Whereas in a way that emphasis now is much more about it being an embedded part of your daily routine of, you know, how you get from A to B. And 
Um, one of the things we've talked about in other episodes has been in particular linking that public transport, so that sort of first and last mile um, to get to the bus stop or to get to the train station um, or, as you say, the round trip to school or, or the shops. Um, and I think that's a very interesting and important part of future transport development, in particular in that more urban environment. Absolutely. And this is something that we are focusing more and more on, that element of cycling as a utility. So it it, it forms that commuting trip, it forms that shopping trip, it forms those um, errands. And that's where we're looking now as part of our planning and uh, where the infrastructure goes, um, elements of that connectivity. So part of that element of the National Cycle Network, we're now looking at where that goes. And a lot of that has been traditionally in green spaces or parks or spaces that aren't necessarily lit or aren't necessarily the most direct because it was uh, to some of it to do with leisure cycling um so where we're working in towns and cities um, and even in rural locations it's about connecting those elements of that network so that it can be a, a utility network so it can be somewhere where people can use to do their everyday trips not just those leisure trips at the weekends um and then thinking about that multimodal element again so thinking about different modes that people use to add together uh, to, to make the full length of their journey, whether that's in public transport, so walking to a, an element of public transport and then walking at the other end, or whether it's cycling, say, to a train station and then having the right facilities there, because that's the bigger element of it, isn't it? It's that, it's that mile journey or whatever it is to that train station, so that that local link that needs to be top top quality and, and safe and feel comfortable and direct and... Uh, and then the facilities need to exist there at the train station too. So you've got somewhere secure to lock up your bike and you feel safe and comfortable leaving it there. Um, so thinking about those elements, that's starting to feature a lot more into the work that we're doing to to connect these different modes up. Because we know that it's not likely that everybody will make their full journey on one mode of transport. So uh, trying to factor that into the way we're doing planning and work and engagement and infrastructure design and infrastructure delivery um, across the country has been been really key Um, and thinking about that design element thinking about who that applies to um, has also been a really big thing Um, traditionally uh, routes have sort of been commuter routes have always been aimed at that sort of radial route so going from the out of the city directly into the city centre but actually we know that different users in this case quite often women for example will do a different type of journey they'll do what's called trip chaining where they connect lots of different journeys um, shorter journeys to do their regular routes or their regular daily trip Um, and that means that those routes actually need to look a lot more spiderwebby around that that city and it's not necessarily going directly into that city centre so thinking about all of these aspects is starting to feature a lot more into the work that we are doing around making that network more accessible more connected and more inclusive yeah, that's one of the things um, I, I was about to try and drop in that, that I learned about <laughs> trip chaining while I was doing the research for this. And it was one of those things that until I actually read it and I thought that actually makes sense that you've got a woman who's dropping a child off at nursery who then has to jump on the bus to go to work and then on the way home may pick the kid up, then go shopping, then do this. and do, So it's multiple journeys versus the male more dominated from what I was reading seems to be a bit more jump in the car, go to work, come home. Um, but th- that's very 
two two distinct areas and there's so many areas in between i'm not saying that all guys just drop go to work and don't drop the kids off so it's all the different variations and the different variations of travel now as well with in bristol in particular e-scooters everywhere for that last bit of the journey plus bikes you can hire which emily does in london a lot so it is shifting it's just how quickly are you seeing it shift or how what do you see needs to change i think the understanding is shifting um, with local authorities, with people that are designing and implementing this infrastructure. I think it's going to take a bit more time, but I think there is that shift and that movement is is happening around who is making these journeys and who would like to make these journeys. So Sustrans, for example, we, we release a report every couple of years. It's newly going to be called the Walking and Cycling Index, but previously it's been called Bike Life. And within that, we ask questions about who wants to cycle, who's already cycling. And then this year we've added walking elements into that as well. And it's using data like that to then inform those local authorities. And that conversation is moving forward to say, these are the changes that we need to make. And these are the changes that we need to think about if we want to get different types of users using this cycling and walking network. And it is that trip chain. And so it is that connectivity to different routes, but then it is also looking at that built environment aspect. So lighting, for example, is a big feature for many people. Um, Knowing that the routes are overlooked by shops and businesses so that they're not going through parts of town that are are dark or quiet um, with that view of safety and feeling safe and the perception of safety and um, thinking about the the busyness and speed and volume of the traffic really and where those routes go in relation to that um and uh quiet quieter routes where where you've got less of that traffic and speed uh, speed and volume so that all of these sorts of aspects are starting to feature more into that designing um uh, and implementation of that infrastructure there are more people asking those questions and there are more people putting that thought into what they're delivering so that's a really interesting almost um sort of oppositional choice of things is on the one hand people wanting quiet routes because it's safer particularly cycling or scooting um, um, and by quiet routes sort of apart from cars Um, but on the other hand not wanting to be down some back lane (laughs) when you're sort of stuck on your own and and, and feel unsafe wanting to be um, part of the kind of visible community and presumably new design can have some quite imaginative ideas about that but imposing design on on cityscapes that already exist is more challenging. But if you were designing from scratch, you know, as a kind of design blueprint, what, what, what would you say are a couple of kind of key features that would be different in order to, to facilitate that uh, scooting and cycling infrastructure? I think the key thing is that in the past, we've locked in or embedded car dependency we've created that space and that network focused on the roads that facilitate or make that space usable but actually where we're seeing changes to the way communities are being developed so one good example is Eddington um, just outside of Cambridge and they have designed the environment to be less car focused and less car centric so the spaces are designed for people so even though shops and facilities are based around a pedestrianized or cyclable space so 
yes, retrospectively, where we've got our cities and towns at the moment, quite often, you're right, those shops and businesses and services will be on those busy main roads where you'll have all that traffic um, and cars but actually looking at that new level of design it doesn't have to be that way those shops and businesses and, and services can be in spaces that are focused towards pe- people pedestrians cyclists scooters wheelers um we've seen it in uh, the way things have changed in parts of uh, Walthamstow and Waltham Forest as part of that sort of um, mini Holland is, is what it's referred to. The idea that, again, you can change a space uh, and change who accesses that space and, and in what modes they access that space to make it still uh, overlooked and busier in terms of footfall and people, but not have those cars and and uh motorized vehicles in that space so it's it's it does require a big new change of thinking but it's not impossible to do and I'd quite like to get to Paris so if anyone wants to take (laughs) me to Paris to go and have a look and see how they've done it I'd really love to go and have a look and see what they've um, achieved because they've been really successful at, at taking a lot of that sort of car traffic away and making those spaces for cycling and walking. A friend of mine's just been in Berlin for the weekend and she was saying Berlin is amazingly cycle friendly. Um, and, and maybe that's another city we should go for a mini break to. She was saying it's, um, you know, it was a real eye opener and a real pleasure of how uh, the, the, the sort of fairly small centre was very car free and very, she said there was just no aggro about cycling, actually. I feel like we're uh, planning our Easter holiday. So quick, quick short trip. <laughs> yes. Via train, by the way, <laughs> to go and have a look at all these examples. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, what city are you going to add in, Caroline? <laughs> oh well, I'm just I assume we have to check in Amsterdam then if we're going to do Paris Absolutely. and Berlin as well. We can uh, do a little European tour. But just feeding into what you were saying, and you were saying we need this big change. Um, obviously, one of the big changes in the last two years were the COVID restrictions that were put in, and um, a lot quieter traffic areas in London. Um, Obviously, some some of those have been changed back, but some of them are staying and being developed further by the council. Do you, has COVID had an impact on all of this, or is it, or has the impact? Have you already seen it waning, or do you think it has actually changed attitudes? It's definitely had an impact. There's a little bit of um, a little bit of hesitation in my voice, but I think it's definitely had an impact. It's really changed the way that local authorities are thinking about cycling, walking and wheeling. Like it's, they've got a bigger commitment to it. The government has obviously shown a bigger commitment with funding and resources um, with things like Gear Change, which was a document they published a couple of years ago, which you you might have already talked about, which shows um, a commitment to active travel as something that the that we, we should all be striving towards. Um, and then, of course, not of course, and then uh, funding has been uh, also uh, increased in all local authorities and with local authorities to access for them to be able to implement some of these uh, active travel routes and, and measures. Um, so I do think there has been a change. Um, and I also think that a lot more people had the opportunity and, you know, this must have been mentioned many times before, but a lot more people had the opportunity to cycle on roads that were traffic free and saw what it could be like. Um, there are still the naysayers, which is where the hesitation comes from. And there are still people that that don't see value in walking and cycling because of the way that it disrupts 
them but it feels to me that it's quite often selfish that we are thinking about it in that those people can be thinking about it in the wrong terms and what what we need to think about is that climate change uh and thinking about how we're how we're moving into the future that that taking cars off the road and reducing the volume of vehicles on the road is the only way forward and if we don't put that investment both in terms of uh money but also that investment of our of our energies and our and our thought processes into active travel we're just going to fall behind and we're going to be at a point where we need to take these cars off the road and not have a suitable alternative what we need is that ability for people to turn go outside and in that same way that they automatically get into their car feel that automatic pull to get on their bike or walk to a a location we need that mindset to shift i'm interested in particular with um the one of the kind of concerns often about public transport is is personal safety um, and, and in particular um, uh, for women and vulnerable groups. Um, and I know that's something that you have um, and within Sustrans have been looking at quite a lot. W- what would you say about that? So actually there was a report released just recently. In fact, it was on International Women's Day, so on the 8th of March, um, through Transport for West Midlands. Um, and... They have released a report called uh, Tackling Violence Against Women and Girls um, Around Transport. And they've looked at, with I think 200 participants, I think, supported this research, looked at some of those elements of what public safety around transport looks like and some of the key things that we can do to, as a transport industry to solve some of these problems or sort of make those spaces safer and feel safer. One of the big ones for me was the number of women in the transport industry that work in the industry and thinking about things like design of infrastructure, but also of services right. and of things like train carriages even. Yeah. Um, so this was this was more holistic of public transport and active travel, that if you have women in place, they've got that lived experience. They can tell you and they can design for them. Yeah, and, yeah. So that was one, but then also thinking about reporting. So often there's not a one location for reporting these sorts of incidents that happen in when women are making journeys. So looking at a sort of more rounded way that there's one reporting system. Yeah. And then also thinking about how women should not have to change what they do or sort of limit the way that they make those journeys because of the fear that actually it's the the environment and the industry that needs to change in order to to change that perception of safety. I mean, interesting that just um, last week on the tube um, in London, I noticed a sign about calling out harassment on on the tube. So kind of not not I mean not as much, not as active as a crime that you go and get the sort of transport police for, but reporting just that kind of hassle and that's not something that I've ever seen before so I think that's quite interesting um, in terms of making it a you know public conversation I mean I remember years and years ago the Women's Institute having a, a big campaign about calling out harassment on public transport but it was very much a kind of 
that, that that very much felt like it was a woman's problem you know that that um, women had to cope with and you know adapt their behavior or be alert themselves as to what was happening rather than this time the narrative seems to as you say be changing more towards it is the responsibility of everybody to ensure that all of us feel safe traveling um, and you shouldn't be having to change what you do to keep yourself safe. Absolutely. And this is sort of what's the key recommendations that have come mm. out of this report, but also work that Sustrans have been doing, that it's it, it's not the that individual woman's responsibility. It's about, yeah, like you said, the industry as a whole, the environment that we create. Um, and going back to that conversation on the roots and the journeys and the network connections that we put in place, it's it's all of it as a whole. It's about changing, changing the way we think about it from that first point uh, and first port of call and thinking about who's designing it and who they're designing it for. Um, and I think, yeah, there's a lot more work being done on this across the sector. We always like to have a little bit of e-scooter chat. Um, normally Caroline brings <laughs> it in. One of the things that's arisen from the trials that have been going on in the last year, which is sort of married up with COVID to an extent, but it's been lots of people having a go on scooters, but it hasn't necessarily expanded the number of people using cycle, walking, scooting. It's kind of people have gone from one to the other rather than a whole new cohort of of, of users. Um, is that something that, that you have seen or have you got any ideas around what we can do about that? Not a huge amount of um, something that I've been working on myself, but there's definitely, I've definitely seen different people, uh, like you say, a different cohort of people using e-scooters. For me, I think it's about an, another opportunity for people to try something that's not a motorized vehicle that's not a car so another way for people to get around i think we do need to figure out how they fit into the active travel environment and where they physically go um, but i do think that if we are planning for active travel infrastructure we just need to incorporate that we need to think about the space required we need to think about the infrastructure like parking them that's required. Um, I don't think they're going anywhere. I think that they're here to stay. So um, I, I think that if we don't factor them into the way we're thinking about transport and micromobility in the future, we're doing something wrong. We're not. We're not going to solve some of the current issues that they they have they are causing, such as parking. Uh, and taking up pavement space for parking so I think it's yeah I think they're here to stay and I think we just need to start thinking about factoring them into what we do um, and and how we how we welcome them into the micro mobility environment yeah I think it's as you said it's a way to live with them I was in Glasgow this weekend and there are no e-scooter trials going on in Scotland at all uh, but I so and I've come from Bristol where we have voice scooters everywhere they're on every corner you just it's amazing how used to them I've got because this weekend in Glasgow, I was like, there's something <laughs> missing from the pavement. Um, and I saw one illegal e-scooter all weekend um, versus that everything everywhere in Bristol. And you do get used to them as, and love them, love them or loathe them. As you said, they're here to stay and it's how we can factor them in. There's the risk that they take people away from walking journeys, which are, of course, more active. But there's also the opportunities that they do give people... An, op an alternative to the car and I'd like to stay hopeful that as we get 
to the point where that, that you know, the congestion in, increases that people think, well, okay, this isn't a viable alternative for me to access. And there, there'll likely still be a walking element involved to go and collect the, the scooter and then a walking element at the end from where you've parked it up. So there's still a bit more activity involved there. I think if we don't see the value in what they can do for taking more cars off the road, that we're missing something. And if we, what's the word, villain? Vilify. And if we vilify them, they will create an, an image of them that will then may not recover. So I think there's a place and we just need to find where that place is and how we, yeah, how we accept them and how we put them into our our environment. Well, it's going back to our European tour earlier that uh, the the cities we were talking about have all got e-scooters in place and they've all had their hiccups and they've all had changes to those, but they're still in place there. And these cities are cycling, e-scootering, walking cities. So we should be the same over here, really. And there's no reason we can't. It's just a change in perception and a change in attitudes. But it it's kind of going full circle back to where we were saying when Sustrand started in 1977. Uh, I hold my hands up. That was the year I was born. And at that point, as I said, I was walking to school. I was cycling. We didn't have a family car. We got the bus everywhere. Um, and I did it without even thinking. Um, fast forward X amount of years that I'm not going to specify. Um, and... I'm driving. I I have to think about if I'm going to walk to the village. It's only a mile and a half back. I used to walk that to school without thinking about it. And it's the whole shift across my rather short life life span so far, how attitudes have shifted in that period. But surely we can shift them back. And that's what the work you're doing is. And as you said, said, Sustrand started out to be leisure cycling because that's what was that was you didn't need to do the other bit because it was just part and parcel of what everyone did anyway. Whereas you know, having to, having to shift the strands to cover what used to be a day-to-day activity for everybody, which was walking, getting on the bus and cycling. This is featured in many sort of different environments. Um, so if you think about, I don't know, uh, cloth nappies, for example, you'd never have think twice about cloth nappies, 50s, 60s, that's what you used. And then we went into disposables and then we realised that they're not, uh, not, not so great for the environment. And many people are now picking up that cloth nappy again. So... Plastic straws, disposable items, like loads of different elements. We're, we're thinking about this in many different parts of our lives. And it's just another part of our lives where we need to think about how we do things because the the shortcut that we have created for ourselves or the, or the, the easier option that we've created for ourselves has some costs to it. And so we are reevaluating those costs. And in this case, costs to the environment, costs to pollution, uh, air quality, we're reevaluating those costs and thinking about how we change what we're doing. But like you say, it's not that we are we don't know what to do. It's not that we haven't done it before. We've done that walking to school element. Um, we just need to go, go back to it. So it's a little bit of back to the future, I suppose, uh, to, to figure out where we go. Remembering the old ways, as they say. So uh, uh, I, I think one of my... Um, a bit off topic one of my favorite books of all time is my mother-in-law has her grandmother's book which is a uh, she was a, a she is a New Zealander it's about pioneering in New Zealand and it's all about how to kind of set up husbandry with skills that you know it's distilled in the book and you realize it's what everyone's done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and then for a very short period of time we stopped 
and you know got everything sort of packaged from the the sort of uh, supermarket and then we're going to go back to those old ways and in a way it's the same with transport um uh, our, our grandmothers um didn't jump in the car all the time didn't have cars all the time let alone expect you know to be able to do that and it's sort of going back to those old ways uh, so maybe we'll be back to having the butcher's boy with his uh, bicycle with a basket at the front delivering. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that's really interesting looking at the kind of rise of the, the local um, um, delivery with Getir and things with the kind of um, grocery delivery. Actually, it's a, it's a modern take on, on the old butcher's you know, butcher's boy on his bicycle bringing things round to your house and the sort of anomalous of driving in your car and doing an enormous supermarket shop uh, will be the thing that will be the odd man out quite soon. Well, again, yeah, we saw that in lockdown, didn't we? We saw that during COVID where people were just using their local centres. So they were walking to their local centres, to their local butcher, uh, baker, candlestick maker and, <laughs> get, and getting their groceries locally and not going to that big supermarket for that one big shop in, in their car. And... I'm hoping, and I'm at least within our household, some of that has has stuck that we we go to our local centre and, and try and pick up something more locally. And all of this, all of this that we've been talking about, is a mind sh- mind shift change. It's that a- automated thing that we've been doing for decades that we we need to 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 shift. It's thinking about the future that we want to create and about how we can play our part in creating that. Um, but it won't be easy. Change never is. And we will have to put some energy and thought into it. But eventually it should become second nature, just as the way going outside and jumping in the car has become second nature. Fingers crossed. So just to tie up in terms of Sustrans and our um, handful of listeners or our multi- multi-million <laughs> listeners somewhere in between um what can they do to get involved with Sustrans? Because I know in terms of looking at stats on your website, you've got lots and lots of volunteers and lots and lots of supporters but you've also you've obviously got you're employed by Sustrans but there's lots everyone else can do in in terms of helping Sustrans and what what would you flag up? Absolutely so like you said there's many many volunteering opportunities we've got lots of volunteers that work on the uh, National Cycle Network so they help maintain it whether that's uh, vegetation clearance or uh, signage Um, but then we've also got lots of volunteers that work within our sort of cities and towns projects um, telling other people about Sustrans and what they do but also participating in some of our projects on the ground so we have volunteers that do some of our community engagement projects sometimes they work with us on schools projects um, and sometimes they work with us in workplace place projects too Um, so you can get involved that way as well and that information's all on the website and then of course if it's sort of um, a more supporter style uh, commitment that you'd like to give that information's all on our website and you can sign up to to support us financially uh, through through those uh, channels. But then, of course, uh, the way that you can really support us is by getting out on your bike and making some of those journeys by bike and by foot. Um, because the more people that use the infrastructure that we, we and local authorities and other providers are putting out there, the more we'll be able to say... We need we need it and we need more of it and we need to connect it to lots of different places. So 
get out on the National Cycle Network, share your photos, share your on social media and and, and tell us that you love it and you use it and you need more of it. Well, that is a that is a, a, a clarion call to us all as we uh, cycle towards the weekend. Sorry we weren't in time for International Women's Day, but um, absolutely brilliant of you to come and talk to us today, but it's been really fascinating, really enjoyed it. Um, and it's only a tiny insight into everything you do. So um, maybe we could ask you to come back again another time and update us on what's happening and, and help us continue the really interesting and important conversation about cycling and our future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and I'd be delighted to come back. Thank you, Ray. I really, really enjoyed that. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeachcroft.com and 39essex.com.